The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. Many of you don't know exactly how the show is prepared, and basically what happens is that during the day, both Peggy and I are constantly looking for articles uh, and items to bring forward to you on the show. And then every morning, Peggy gets up about, oh, about 5 o'clock or so, and by 5.30, she has the kind of overnight articles uh, to present to me. And there's one author that we look for each and every day because his writing is so good um, and so interesting. Frankly, they're just interesting articles to read. And I encourage you all, by the way, to go to themotleyfool.com, themotleyfool.com, and read Morgan Hazel each and every day because he's a tremendous author and just uh, what he writes makes so much sense. I mean, I, I think I enjoy reading him more than anyone else. And we're very fortunate to have him today. And by the way, if you'd like to call, give us a call, the phone number, we have a temporary phone number, so it's not the one we always have, 877-931-9003. That's 877-931-9003. Morgan Housel's an analyst and columnist at The Motley Fool. He's a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers and was selected for the Best Business Writing 2012 an anthology from the Columbia School of Re Columbia Journalism Review. Prior to joining the Motley Fool, he is a private equity analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners in Los Angeles, and we are pleased this morning to have back again Morgan Housel. Good morning, Morgan. Good morning. Thanks for having me, and thanks for those kind words. No, thank you for being on. Oh no, you're a great, you're a great author. I look forward to reading you each and every day. In fact, every now and then. I, I, it doesn't look like I, I don't guess you write every day for the Motley Fool, and I get really disappointed because I can't find something new. So what I'll do is I'll just as much as possible. Sorry for disappointing you. Yeah, well, and so what I do is I just read one of your old ones. I mean, in fact, right. you've got you got one you wrote called the Forty Three Thoughts About Investing and the Economy. I think I could read that one, frankly, uh, every week uh, for the rest of my career. I particularly like uh, number eight. There are now more hedge funds in the U.S. than there are Taco Bells. This explains why the average hedge fund manager is about as talented as a bean burrito oh my gosh that's fun that's that's really that's really great stuff anyway uh, you wrote an article yesterday uh about the most important thing investors should remember during your government shutdown and here we are we've got the government shutdown what are your thoughts on that and uh what should the investors take away from this well you know there's so much talk about what the shutdown means for the economy and for investors uh, and, and there's just a massive amount of coverage uh, on the shutdown right now on financial websites, the Wall Street Journal, CNN Money, talking about is this going to hurt the economy, is this bad for stocks. And I think what's important to realize is that, uh, A, we have been here before. The government shut down in 1995, 1996. It's actually shut down 18 times since 1970, I believe. Uh, and, and what has that done to businesses? to the economy, to stock markets over the long term, over the last 10, 20, 30 years? And the answer is, is of course, basically nothing. So, so, so in this article, I went back and I looked at what happened in 1995 during the last government shutdown. Well, two really important things happened right in the middle of that shutdown in 1995. Some guy named Jeff Bezos sold his first book out of, a, out of his garage for a startup company he called Amazon.com. Uh, so how much was Jeff Bezos worried about the government shutdown back then? Well, of course, he wasn't worried whatsoever. Right. The other thing that happened was two guys met at Stanford Graduate School named Sergey Brand and Larry Page, uh, who, who went on to start a company called Google, of course. How much were they worried about the shutdown at the time? Well, not at all. So, it, 
So, you know, there are really two people that you can pay attention to right now during the shutdown. You can pay attention to the, the pundits, the political pundits that are talking about what does this mean in the short term, who's scoring the short term points, what does this mean for the stock market today and tomorrow and this week. Or you can pay attention to the long-term business leaders, the long-term investors who, who aren't focused whatsoever on the shutdown. They're taking the long-term view of businesses, the long-term view of, of investing, where is the stock market going to be 10, 20 years from now. Uh, and, you know, my, my advice, I, I, and I really think the only way to go as an investor is to focus on that second group and really take the long-term view of things and tune out the short-term noise. Right, and, and both you and the Motley Fool are very good at delivering good, sound advice to the average investor. Do you think that uh, a lot of these political pundits and a lot of the talking heads on, on, uh, on really television media more than anything else um, are really uh, doing more harm than good? I mean, it was, it was really interesting to note that, uh, that after Mr. Bernanke came out a couple of weeks ago now and, and said, uh, you know, I'm not going to taper. I'm going to I'm going to keep the pedal to the metal until things get better. And you know, everybody expressed shock. Everybody was quite concerned. And and uh, and it came out that literally the the vast vast majority of all analysts, economists, and talking heads completely missed it. I mean, uh, there were co a complete miss. Uh, do you think that they typically do more harm than good? And and what should the individual investor do as you're sitting there listening to CNBC or one of the other um, one of the other uh, media outlets. Well, to answer your last question, yes, I think on whole they do do more bad than good. And I think the reason why is because pundits talk and they forecast not because they have something to, to say. They do it because that's their job and they're paid to do that. Uh, and even if they have nothing to say, they have no insights, they have no opinions on a particular issue, they have to come up with something to say. That's, that's, that's the downside of 24-7 of news is that even though they're on air for 24 right. hours a day, there's maybe 30 or 60 minutes of news per day. You know, in the last 20 years, uh, uh, 30 years, I guess, all cable news has gone from pretty much one or two hours a day. You had, you had the, the evening news from 5 to 6, and that was pretty much it. Now we're 24-7. But what has changed during the last 30 years is not the volume of news. It's the volume of, of, of drivel and just nonsense opinions that pundits and analysts come on and bring on the news. Uh, so I, it's really important as an investor when you're watching that to realize that these pundits aren't necessarily concerned about your financial well-being and your long-term wealth and your long-term money. They're concerned with saying something online to impress their boss. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to in the industry. Uh, and if, 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 if you get these guys in a corner when they're not on air and talk to them, they know that. This is just part of the game. Uh, so if you're a long-term investor wondering what this means, I, I think you are probably better served by tuning out the news and turning off the NBC and focusing on your own goals, focusing on your own money and where, where, where you want to be in the long term rather than what's happening this week in Washington. Now, investors are constantly asking us. In fact, we got an email the other day from, uh, from a listener in Colorado. Um, you know, where can they get a basic education? I think the Motley Fool does a very good job of that. Are there some other areas or some other places that uh, that you would you would recommend or something you'd recommend to, to novice investors that are just getting started? Um, because you're right, at some point they've got to formulate their own opinion. They've got to formulate their own strategy and try to block out all the noise and, and the volatility. Is there, uh, you know, if, if a friend came up to you and said, hey, how can I learn about all this stuff, what would you tell them? 
Well, you know, certainly my, you know, certainly the, the Motley Fool, I think, is a great resource. I'm biased right. to that, of course. Uh, but, you know, there, there are many, many great resources on the Internet that investors can access for free. One that takes a little bit of effort to put into, but I think is the most valuable, is Twitter. If people aren't on that, you know, on Twitter you can go in and follow some of the greatest financial minds in the world, the best investors, the best economists, and see what they're saying all day. That's a really valuable resource. Uh, you know, most of the financial news sites that are into breaking news, I think, those have a lot more uh, damaging noise than they than they do good, solid financial advice that you can learn from. I, I think if someone is young and they really want to get into investing, I think one of the best things they can do is just go to the bookstore, go to the investing website, to, to, I'm sorry, to the, invest, the investing section, and just read as, as, much, as, as much as they can. Something else I would say about investing is that the world's best investors, I think, have much more of an edge in things like psychology and history than they do finance. So I think if you want to become a great investor, it's important to understand the mechanics of investing and to have a financial background. It's also really important to understand the psychological biases that, that affect investors, some financial history to see what we've been through before and that one. So it's really important to get a, a well-rounded education. Absolutely. In fact, I've always, I constantly say emotions make a very poor investment advisor. When we come back, Morgan, if you'll hang on, I'd like to talk to you about your thoughts on the Fed uh, and about the, you've been writing about this new baby boom. So when we come back, we're speaking with Morgan Housel, folks, analysts and columnists at The Motley Fool. Stay with us. We'll be back to you in just a moment. The following is a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions. People ask me frequently, I mean, who do you listen to? Who do you write? I mean, what do you read? Things like that. There's one person that we always read. Peggy and I always look for his articles each and every day, and we're pleased to have him on again with us today. Morgan Housel, analyst and columnist at The Motley Fool. And Morgan, before the break... Uh, we were talking about several things, but one of the things I want to talk about now is uh, is the Fed, because the Fed plays such a big role in our life now. And, you know, for years, you, you kind of the Fed was kind of in the background. Now, everything that Mr. Bernanke and company says is is uh, is front and center uh, in the news media, on on print media, on the television. Um, and uh, you wrote an article called "Histories, Guys: Don't Take Your Investing Cues from the Fed." Um, and you start out really with an interesting uh, comment that the Federal Reserve might be the most powerful institution in the world, and if you're an investor, ignore it. What did you mean by that? Well, there, there, there are a few things to keep in mind that I made uh, in the article. One is that the history of analysts and economists and pundits forecasting what the Fed is going to do next uh, is, 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 is fairly dismal, and we, we saw that two weeks ago with the Fed when everyone thought the Fed was going to quote-unquote taper. They were going to stop buying as many bonds as they are now, stop printing as much money. Virtually everyone thought that was going to be the case, and that's not what the Fed did. And it took a lot of people by surprise. But I think if you go back and look at the history of Fed moves, this is par for the course. I mean, it's very difficult to tell what the Fed is going to do. So as an investor, if you're trying to forecast that, you're trying to say, what's the Fed going to do next, and how can I... Uh, how can I adjust my, my investments around that? That is a very, very difficult thing to do. And then the second point I made in the article was that even if you do know what the Fed is going to do, we, we really don't know what the market's reaction to that is going to be. So I think a really interesting point right now is that a lot of people are saying 
when the Fed stops buying bonds, interest rates are going to rise, right? That makes sense. But in the last four years, there have been actually several times when the Fed stopped buying bonds, when they discontinued their so-called QE programs. And what happens to interest rates during that time? Every time the Fed stopped buying bonds, interest rates fell. And every time the Fed started buying bonds again, interest rates went up. And that's the opposite of what you would assume would happen in theory, that the, you know, the finance textbooks tell you should happen. But that's, that's what actually happened. So, my, my, so all I'm advocating uh, is, is humility. You know, we, we don't know what the Fed is going to do next. And even if we did, we don't know what the market's reaction to it is going to be. And therefore, I, I think for investors, they should pay more attention to things like uh, the value and quality of good companies and what their long-term goals are uh, you know, over the next 10 or 20 years and not what the Fed is going to do this quarter or next quarter. Yeah, you give very good advice. In fact, you, uh, I, I read the opening sen- sentence. I love your closing sentence. It says, base your investment decisions around your own goals, risk tolerance, and experience. Keep your eye on high-quality businesses, not government policy changes. And I think that is really, really good advice uh, to give the folks. You also mentioned there, kind of interesting, that it's not as clear as some people presume, presume that the Fed is, is propping up stocks. All I've heard about, frankly, in the last years is how the market wouldn't be where it is without the Fed. Uh, do you believe that there is a, an argument against that, that the stock market would be where it is now, even on its own, if the Fed weren't actively involved? Well, I think that that's very likely the case. I just don't think it's as slam dunk a case as many people assume. And that look at if you look at the stock market since 2007, which was before the Fed started all these extraordinary measures, the stock market was higher than it is today when you adjust for inflation. So to say that the Fed has been, you know, blowing a bubble in the stock market when the stock market hasn't even kept up with inflation since the Fed began these extraordinary measures is, I think, kind of a stretch. I, I think just in terms of how market psychology works and, uh, you know, h- how investors react to things in the short term, I think, yes, the odds are very good that, that if the Fed didn't do anything over the last four years, the, the, the market would be significantly lower. And, and I think the main reason for that is that if, if the Fed hadn't, you know, saved the financial system in 2008, the economy would be in much worse shape than it is now. Uh, but it, it's, it's really hard to connect the dots and say, look, if the Fed pulls away and the stock market is going gonna, is, is gonna to fall or crash, I, I just don't think there's much evidence for that, and it's not something that I think investors should be worried about or thinking about. Uh, and I agree. I agree. Well, let's, let, I've, got, I've got to move pretty quickly. And folks, by the way, uh, go to the motleyfool.com. First of all, I think you should do it anyway. It's a great resource. But secondly, we're talking about a lot of articles that Morgan has written, and you can pull those up on the motleyfool.com. Uh, Morgan, you think we're into, into a new baby boom? You know, a lot of talk about demographics, particularly on this show. I'm a big believer in demographics. Uh, and uh, right now, I think we're going through kind of a, a lull. Uh, between generations, and you've got more, you got really the, the United States is really aging pretty rep- rapidly. But you seem to be talking about in two articles how, Amer- how America will age over the next 30 years, and then <clears throat> another one, a new baby boom, America's next economic miracle. Let's talk about that. Um, do we have a new baby boom? Well, we, we don't right now. So I think what we're talking about is what could potentially happen in the future. And demographics are hard to forecast, just like anything else, and especially with demographics when we're talking about what's going to happen over the next 30 or 50 years. That's extraordinarily difficult. But I think there, there are a few points to keep in mind. One is that right before we had the last baby boom, which began right after World War II, very few people saw that coming. That was, not, that, that, that was only obvious in hindsight. If you go back to the 1930s during the Great Depression, 
birth rates were plunging, as they are right now, and the, and the, and the country was aging. And nobody forecast that we would have a massive baby boom in the 40s. You just couldn't see that coming. So I think when people look at demographics today, the standard response is, oh, we're aging and we're going to keep aging forever. You know, I, I, I don't think history is very kind of that argument. Demographics move in cycles. And we're, we've been in an aging cycle for decades, but I don't think you can rule out that we'll have a new baby boom. And the, the reason that we could potentially have a new baby boom is kind of interesting. Over the last 20 years, uh, there's been a tremendous rise in the average age at which women uh, have babies. It's moved from about 19 to 20, 30 or 40 years ago, to now it's in the late 20s. And for, for some cohorts and, and for some races, it's, it's, it's in the mid-30s to late-30s, even if they're having their babies. And what that does to demographics when women are having babies in their 30s instead of their 20s, is that in the short run, it makes it look like we're having far fewer babies than we used to. The birth rate, uh, the fertility rate, I should say, declines in the short run. But it's declining not because we're having fewer babies, it's because we're having fewer babies in our 20s. And then as you move on through the decades, the, the, the more women are having babies in their 30s, it, that starts to filter into the fertility rate, and the total birth rate of the country starts to rise. The other point that I would make is that for most of the last 20 years, the population of American women in their, in their prime childbearing age, from age 20 to 39, has been declining fairly substantially. It declined by about 3 million from 1990 to 2005. Uh, but, but that decline is now bottomed, and that, that uh, cohort of prime child of uh, prime age women that are in their, in their childbearing years is now rising substantially. So if you put those two together, I, I think the odds are better than people think that we could have a baby boom over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, and it, it's not it's not guaranteed. It's not a slam dunk. But I think so few people are, are even considering it that if we were to have it, I think it would really take a lot of people by surprise. Oh, and I agree. And I, and I think we will have a baby boom. Uh, I really I think that... Uh, it's just a natural course that uh, I know my children at some point will will get married. They're, as you're right, they get married later on now in life, and uh, and they, we will start a whole new cycle all over again. Well, listen, Morgan, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for all that you do for the investing public in the great articles that you write on TheMotleyFool.com. Thank you for appearing with us today, sir. Thanks for having me. Thank you. MotleyFool.com, folks. I'll be back in just a moment. You have been listening to a rebroadcast of Straight Talk About Money. The market data in this rebroadcast is not current and should not be used for any financial decisions.